1: This economy are you making the money you could be making welcome to high yield with your hosts Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds the old ways don't work anymore so let Frank and Dave help you find new high yielding opportunities you can start by tuning in for the next hour now here's Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds
2: Welcome to High Yield, the show that tries to show you a new path to success and having a high yield on your personal and financial life here in a very troubled U.S. economy. And today we're going to be talking about the world of financing. It's a big world, and so we have plenty to talk about for an hour. You know, one of the keys to many of the high yielding opportunities we've talked about over the last several weeks is real estate, and particularly to be involved in real estate is the use of financing, also known as leverage. And it's a critical part of deal-making. You know, often what what makes or breaks you from being able to buy a property is nothing more than your ability to get a loan on it. So we thought today we'd go over all the various parts of financing, the different options, what's good, what's bad, and just try and get you up to speed on the wide world of financing and how you need that in order, in many cases, to take advantage of those high-yield opportunities. So we'll start off talking about how, how financing works, just the basics of how it works some of the basic terms and what they mean. You know, basically leverage or financing is is not a negative. A lot of people think when they hear the words leverage, you know, it harkens back to some kind of, I don't know what, uh, you know, thing they read in the paper or on the internet of some financier who went bankrupt because of leverage. Leverage is not a bad thing. Now, there are different types of leverage. There's crazy leverage where you do zero down or often you know, less than zero down on a deal. And you are very much at risk when you do those of changes in interest rates or changes in valuations that make you effectively what's known as upside down in your in your deal. So, you know, leverage can definitely be bad. And there's no question that buying things with all cash is safer than buying things with debt. But the problem is to get high yields on most items in real estate, you have to have some form of debt or leverage to get that yield. And let me explain why that would be. Let's say you have a piece of property. Let's make it a, a, an income producing mobile home park. And the rate of return on that park, if you bought it for all cash, is 10%. So it's what we call a 10% cap rate. Well, you know, 10% is great, but instead of 10, how would you like to make 15 or 20? Well, you can without any greater effort on your part simply by putting a bank loan on that same mobile home park at a 5% interest rate. So if you put down 20% and the bank does 80% at 5%, then instead of 10% on your 20% down, now you're making more along the lines of 15% or more. So that's why people use leverage. It doesn't increase their workload, but it does increase to some degree is their risk. So as long as the leverage is used intelligently, though, the concept would be that you haven't really increased your risk much. And so you have basically spiked or increased your, your yield up enormously by doing nothing more than letting a bank who, who has access and is happy with lower interest rates kind of share in the business. Now, you know, if you really think about what leverage is, what's going on is, you know, you, you've got a rate of return that makes you happy. And banks have one that makes them happy, but theirs is just a whole lot lower. That, that's really the truth. So a bank can make, you know, 5% or 7% on a loan. And you might say to yourself, I would never do that. I would never take that risk and only earn 5%. But banks do. That's one of the ways the banking industry is set up. So basically, you're, you're just taking advantage of that bank's lower expectations and, and making more money for yourself. So there's, there's, you know, financing and leverage is not a bad thing. Don't let anyone tell you it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It can be used incorrectly, that's for sure. But at at the same time, it can can be used for good purposes. It's kind of like the the new gun control debate we're having in the U.S. You know, I'm not really a gun person nor an anti-gun person, but it seems to me like the argument that, you know, the guns are not 100% at fault is, is somewhat accurate because you've got people out there who use guns for good purposes. Police do. Hunters do. And then people who use them for terrible purposes, like what happened there in Newton. So, uh, you know, you have to look at, at leverage or financing in, an, in and of itself. It's not evil. It's not bad. It's really just all about how you use it. That's the key. All right, so let's say you, you decided you want to put a note on a piece of real estate. So what are the basic concepts you need to know and understand? Well, the first one is a concept called recourse and non-recourse. And let me go over what that means because it's super important, but a lot of people don't even know what it is exactly, so I'm going to try and explain it to you. When you've got a piece of real estate and you put a loan on it, let's say through some bit of misfortune the loan goes bad, so you cannot make your payments, and let's assume that ultimately the bank forecloses on it. What happens then? Well, when the bank ultimately forecloses on that property, because you promised to pay them, you didn't pay them, so they take the property back. They will then sell that property at an auction to get their money back. But what happens is they don't always get their money back. There's normally sometimes a deficiency because the park in the end wasn't worth as much as you, you paid for it or, or whatever the property is. So what happens then is they, there's this shortage. You know you, you have a loan for a million dollars and you didn't, you didn't pay them back a million. In the end, they, they sold it at auction and they got $700,000. So where does that $300,000 come from? Because that's how much they're short. Well, if you have what's called a non-recourse loan, the, the $300,000 is just basically erased because the bank does not have the ability to come after you for any losses on the loan. But if you have a recourse loan, that means they have recourse against you personally, or whoever signed the note. So basically, they can come back to you and say, hey, we made you this loan. You promised to pay. You didn't pay. We sold it at auction. We took a loss. You've got to cover the loss. So using that example, in a non-recourse note, you would owe nothing. And in a recourse note, you would owe $300,000. So clearly, recourse debt is not as good to the borrower as non-recourse debt. So if you have to choose between the two, you definitely want non-recourse. The second thing is a cure period. When you make that note, there are all kinds of things that can make you default the note. You didn't make the payments, possibly, or maybe you didn't, uh, you know, you don't meet your coverage ratios. You'd promised the bank when you signed up that you would meet. So there's all kinds of different options that could come in and, and cause you to theoretically default. What's important, though, is that your note contains the ability to cure whatever it is that you defaulted. Let me give you an example. If you send in your monthly payment to the bank, and you put it in the mailbox at 3 o'clock on Saturday, and when the the postal employee empties the mailbox, they're not paying attention, there's a gust of wind, and your envelope falls on the ground, and then it blows out in the street, and then a car runs over it, it sticks to their tire, and it travels several more miles down the road, and ultimately ends up out in the woods somewhere, where a bird makes it into their nest what happens to you? Well, in many notes, your payment never arrived at the bank, so you became in default at the bank, and they can now call the note. If there's a cure period, they have to send you a letter saying, we never got your payment, and you have X number of days to get us the payment or you're in default. So the cure period is what gives you the safety cushion of knowing that you're in default, because you might not even know you're in default. and it gives you the opportunity to fix it. So cure period is a very important item to have in your note. Next item is the start date. You know, there are, there are people out there who will write notes. Normally it's not at a bank, it's between family members, and they forget to say when the note starts. That's a real problem. If there's no start date, you don't know, you know, let's say it's a six year note, you don't know when the six year ends. So you need a start date. Another item is the term of the note. Now, the term of the note basically means how long the note is good for. So a note through a bank that has a, a five-year term means that the entire unpaid balance comes due in five years. Now, they might renew your note for another five years, but you have to be aware that, that the term of that note, at the end of that term, you have to be prepared to pay the note off in full or have a replacement lender. Now, another item, you know, the term of the note is how long the note exists, but the next item is amortization, and that's how many years your payments are spread over, even though the note, the note term may be far shorter than the amortization. So let's say you're, you have a mortgage on a, a commercial building and it's 30-year amortization, which means if you make your payments every month for, for 30 years at the end, you owe nothing, and the building is yours free and clear. But let's say that same note has a 10-year term. What that means is you make payments as though your note runs for 30 years, but at the end of the 10-year period, you have to be paying off the bank in full. So there's a big importance between the term and the amortization. Another item is your interest rates, whether it's fixed or variable. You know, everyone I think knows what interest rate is, but they may not be familiar with fixed or variable. Basically, a fixed rate is just that; it's fixed, it never changes, and a variable changes. So, some some mortgages out there they have a, a interest rate that remains the same for three years, and thereafter it fluctuates based on some factor. It might be the prime rate or something else that it's tied to, but but the interest rates can go up. And in some cases, can go down. Uh, next item is a balloon. This goes back to the term of the note. Basically, when the note comes due, it's what's called a balloon, which means everything left on that note is due in full. So you have to be prepared to pay off the entire principal in one lump right there, right then and there. Uh, another option you need to know about is a right of a second lien. You know, sometimes when you have a piece of property, you want to go and get. An additional loan on the property to, let's say, re- chain, you know, re- replace the roof or something else. Some banks will not allow you to to get a second loan or a second lien on the property, so you need to make sure you understand that in your in your note terms. Assumable versus non-assumable. What, what that means is you've got a note, you've been paying on the note, but now suddenly you want to sell the property to somebody else. Can they just assume your mortgage? Or is your mortgage what's called non-assumable, which means they cannot do that and they have to go ahead and apply for a new mortgage themselves. Next item is points. And what this is, often when you originate a loan, you have to pay some fee to the bank. And and often it's called a point or two points. A point means 1% effectively. So you have to pay some fee to the bank that that is based on the original amount of the loan. So if you're doing a million-dollar loan and it's a one-point fee, that would be $10,000. Another thing is what the bank's rights are in order to call your note or claim that you're in default and trigger full payment of the note back. You want to make sure you understand that. prepayment penalty, which means basically if you prepay the note in full in advance of when it's due, some banks will charge you a a, a penalty fee. You need to know that. What happens in the default, what that means is you've got your note, you've been making payments, and suddenly you can't. you You need to know what happens to you. When you don't make that payment, and the note basically goes into default, what happens then? You need to know all of the steps and such on the default. And finally, some knowledge of coverage ratios. These are the ratios that tell you how much of the note your net income is supposed to cover. Normally, most banks want to see maybe a 20% coverage ratio, which means the property makes at least enough to cover the note and have 20% left over. So these are some of the basic terms of financing. We're going to take a break here when we come back. We're going to talk about all the different types of financing. This is Frank Roth with High Yield, and we'll be right back.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you are looking for the highest yielding niches in real estate, then go to Commercial Real Estate University at CREUniversity.com. This website is devoted to exploring the few niches of real estate that can still generate 20% plus returns on your money and offers you college quality courses on how to locate, evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, finance, turn around, and operate the hottest sectors of real estate today. Mobile home parks, billboards, RV parks, and self-storage. All of the materials are written and produced by Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds based on their experiences in over $150 million of real estate bought and sold. If you're looking for real estate investments that make more than low single digits, and if you're looking for 100% facts with no sales pitch, then go to CREUniversity.com. Or call 800-950-1364. That number again is 800-950-1364. Or visit the website at creuniversity.com.
3: The affordability gap in this country is considerable. There are simply not enough affordable places to live for the millions of lowest-income households. Jeff Mueller of Marcus & Millichap is one of the nation's top manufactured housing community brokers. As a specialist in the manufactured housing industry, please contact Jeff Mueller to help capitalize on the growing demand of affordable housing. Whether you're an investor looking to achieve double-digit returns or an owner considering expanding your position through a tax-deferred exchange, Jeff Mueller can help. Please call Jeff at 303 303- 328-2049. That's 303-328-2049.
4: Hi, I'm Kurt Kelly, President of Mobile Insurance. Mobile is a specialty investment property insurance agency. Parks, self-storage facilities, rental properties, commercial buildings. We offer the coverage you need, explained clearly, and low rates. Call us at 800 458 4320 or visit us at mobileagency.com because we understand how to ensure investment profits.
1: The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to High Yield with Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. If you have a question or comment about our program this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can send an email to frank.rolf at gmail.com. Now, back to High Yield.
2: Welcome back to High Yield. This is Frank Roth. Today we're talking about the wide world of financing, all the different ways to pay for those real estate opportunities that you see that you want to buy, but you can't pay for in cash. And so you need to go out there and get a loan in order to buy it and get a hold of that high yield. We've talked at first about the basic terms of notes and different pieces of the puzzle and how they work. Now we're going to talk about the different types of financing because there's more than one way to get a loan and wanted to go over these and go into them a little more depth so you can see what the options are out there for you and decide which kind of option works the best for you. The first type of financing, and one of our favorite types of financing we use all the time, is what's called seller financing, also known as seller carry. And in this case, the seller of the property basically acts as the bank. So you escape all the different things that you normally have to deal with with the bank. You don't have any application there's no presentation there's no credit checking there's no there's nothing you know when a bank finances a piece of property they have to go in and do all kinds of due diligence to make sure that their investment in that property is secure when the seller does it he doesn't have to do any of those items cuz he already knows the property so it's a huge difference you know it's possible you can go in and buy a 5 million dollar property using seller financing and even though maybe you declared bankruptcy three weeks ago because they don't do any credit checking normally at all. The seller's only collateral when he carries the financing traditionally is the property itself that he's selling. So the bottom line is, you know, it's a very great form of lending for most folks, for most, most borrowers. Other benefits of seller financing are you have variable rates of down payment because since there is no bank, the seller can basically do whatever he likes. So if the banker likes you, or the seller likes you, he can do a 0% down deal, 10%, 5%, whatever the case may be. There's really no limitation. So uh, effectively, the seller, seller financing, when you hear about deals that are zero down and such, most of those originate as seller finance deals. Other advantages are the seller can charge you a below market interest rate. The seller can give you a term longer than a bank traditionally can. We've seen seller finance notes that run a full 30 years, which is very, very unusual in commercial real estate. So there's all kinds of benefits to seller financing. Now, at the same time, there are some downsides to it that you need to be aware of. The the first big downside to seller financing is that same lack of scrutiny that you see as a plus on one hand can be a negative on the other. Because when the bank does all of that scrutiny on the property that sometimes can save you from a lot of grief. Bank will come back and say, oh, I can't do that loan because the survey shows you're in the floodplain. Well, you didn't know you were in the floodplain. Or the, survey, or the, the title work shows that this, this seller doesn't really own the property. Well, that's good to know. With seller financing, traditionally, you know, you're, you're not quite as safe because you're not having the different scrutiny of a whole other set of eyes looking over the deal Advising you that maybe it's just not economically prudent, or there's problems in the structurally with the, with the loan. So that's that's the good side and the downside of seller carry. It's easy, it's very advantageous, but at the other hand, it can get you into trouble if you don't know what you're doing. So basically, when you add the two together, most people still opt for seller financing. But but you know one good thing to do when you do seller financing is try and get some independent person, maybe a family member, friend, or somebody, maybe a, maybe a consultant, to put another set of eyes on the deal just a little bit to make sure you're not getting yourself in trouble. That, that's that's probably a good idea. Uh, the next type of lending is called hard money lending. Now, in hard money lending, what happens is someone who is not a bank, normally an individual or maybe a company, they make loans that are very much different than what banks do. The, the normally... They will make loans on things that banks won't make loans on. Uh property that's got too much vacancy, for, for example, they will make loans on that. And also the terms are much different. Uh, the hard money lenders, normally their interest rates are much higher. They're, the terms of the loans are much shorter. Uh, so basically, I, I look at hard money lending. I know this sounds bad, but I look at it in many cases kind of like borrowing money from the mob because it's not structured, there's no oversight by the government like banks have. So you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. I know folks who have done hard money loans with, with people who are not, not, you know, sometimes on the up and up and gotten themselves in all kinds of trouble. So hard money lending, again, it can be easier than bank lending because often you can get things borrowed against that you can't traditionally. It's kind of like a pawn shop. But the problem you also have is, once you, once you get the loan, often your interest rate is high, your ability to default is high, your penalties if you do default are high, so there can be lots of problems. Now, not all, all hard money lenders are like that. There are some hard money lenders that have been around for a long time that are purely legitimate and they do a good service by offering loans on things that most banks will not do. There's a whole other variety though, <clears throat> and some of these are in fact called loan-to-own shops. Which means they make loans, assuming and hoping you will default, so they can just take the asset and keep your money. So you have to be careful on those. Uh, the third type of financing source are small town banks. Now, what I mean by a small town bank, a small town bank would be a standalone bank, maybe in the middle of downtown of, you know, uh, Keokuk, Iowa, or some other small town, and basically this bank is it is a bank it's licensed through the u.s. government as a bank but it's got a little more of a wildcat spirit because the owner of the bank calls all the shots these banks have often been around for long periods of time maybe the 1920s 1930s owned by the same family and they feel a lot looser they feel a lot more able to do what they want to do because often they control all the shots i mean family members maybe the whole board of the bank they've had it forever. Those banks in many small towns, despite the single-family home meltdown and other issues, they're still very financially strong. And so you can sometimes get a deal done at a small-town bank you could not get at a larger bank, because if they like you, or they like the market, or they're just having a good day, they may approve your loan when a a more structured bank would not. Now, the downside to small-town banks, well, there really isn't. Uh, you know, often they will do the same scrutiny or mo- most, m- much of the same scrutiny as larger banks. They are controlled by the government, so they can't cause you problems outside their ability under U.S. law, banking laws, to, to deal with you as a borrower. So they have all the pluses of banking, but they don't have the negativity of those larger banks that can often question you as a borrower, question the property, and that kind of thing. So those those can often be a really great resource for lending. In fact, for the last, you know, many years here, maybe the last five years, while the rest of the U.S. banking industry was in turmoil there for a while, small-town banks were still making loans like nothing had happened. So they're a really good resource. The next one is the bank that's a little bit farther up the food chain called the regional bank. This is kind of like a small-town bank, only there's multiple branches. So it may be a bank where there's five or ten different Bank branches throughout a typical region. For example, where I am here in southeast Missouri, a, a bank, there's a bank called First Bank, which you will find all around our general area. But you won't find them in California or Montana or somewhere else. They're just basically a regional bank. Those banks, again, because they're smaller, you can get a little more personalized service. You may get, you know, a little more attractive, uh, you know, response to your loan request because maybe you can you know, talk to folks who are a little more up the food chain as far as getting things approved. So there's certainly nothing wrong with them. Downsides from regional banks, there really isn't a downside from a regional bank. It's, again, it's under the same banking charter as the big banks and the small banks, and they normally play ball and play fair. So there really isn't a problem with regional banks. next one is the national bank. Now, the national bank is a bank that's giant. Wells Fargo, for example, Bank of America, those type of banks... The, the big problem you have with using national banks is that to be on their radar screen as an attractive borrower, you have to have a giant deal. So that's problem number one. If you've got a smaller loan size, they may just not want to deal with you at all. Another problem you have with national banks is it's often very hard if you have a problem to find anyone who has the capability of altering your loan or helping you because they're so large, no one really knows who's responsible. There's not a whole lot of accountability, which makes it very, very hard. Uh, Next up to bat are credit unions. These are like banks. I'm sure everyone's seen these. They're often employee credit unions, but they're not truly banks. And because of that, they can often, again, be a little more flexible in what they do. There's certainly nothing wrong with them. There's really no downside. They're really just another form of bank. They're probably most similar to the the small-town bank as far as their structure and what all they can do. But again, there's no real negative to credit unions. Uh, next up to better conduit loans. This this is the highest form of banking for most people. The conduit is a non-recourse, traditionally ten-year fixed interest rate non-recourse loan. So these are these are the most attractive loans you can get through a bank. Uh, they're called conduit because the bank acts as a conduit. It, it originates the loan, but then it sells the loan on Wall Street to investors who all buy little bits and pieces of that loan at a certain interest rate. The benefits to conduit are huge. One is the often 10-year term, fixed interest rate, non-recourse structure. Uh, Also, conduit loans often allow for cash outs and things like that. The only negative you have on conduit is if you want to prepay the loan, you can't. In conduit loans, if you have a 10-year loan, you cannot prepay that 10-year loan unless you pay a a huge penalty called a defeasance. And often this defeasance can be giant. On a million-dollar property, the defeasance could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So... That's a big problem with conduit. If you're going to do one, it's, you have to stick with it. You can't just do one and then sell it shortly thereafter. Now you can get assumptions on conduit loans. So they do, they are assumable normally. So that's a plus, but your biggest downside on the conduit is simply the fact you can't prepay it. Finally, there are some other government programs out there, different, different things that the government has set up on larger real estate transactions. The, the upside on those over conduit is even lower interest rates, but the downside is it takes forever to get those things done. Some of those loans take over a year to do. So for most folks on this call, that is not going to be an option you'll be looking at anytime soon, maybe much later in your career. All right, so we're going to take another break now. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to actually get financing. This is Frank Roth with High Yield, and we'll be right back.
1: If you are looking for the highest-yielding niches in real estate, then go to Commercial Real Estate University at CREUniversity.com. This website is devoted to exploring the few niches of real estate that can still generate 20%-plus returns on your money and offers you college-quality courses on how to locate, evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, finance, turn around, and operate the hottest sectors of real estate today. Mobile home parks, billboards, RV parks, and self-storage. All of the materials are written and produced by Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds based on their experiences in over $150 million of real estate bought and sold. If you're looking for real estate investments that make more than low single digits, and if you're looking for 100% facts with no sales pitch, then go to CREUniversity.com or call 800-950-1364. That number again is 800-950-1364. Or visit the website at CREUniversity.com.
4: Hi, I'm Kirk Kelly, President of Mobile Insurance. Mobile is a specialty investment property insurance agency. Parks, self-storage facilities, rental properties, commercial buildings. We offer the coverage you need explained clearly, and low rates. Call us at 800-458-4320 or visit us at mobileagency.com because we understand how to ensure investment properties.
3: The affordability gap in this country is considerable. There are simply not enough affordable places to live for the millions of lowest income households. Jeff Mueller of Marcus & Millichap is one of the nation's top manufactured housing community brokers. As a specialist in the manufactured housing industry, please contact Jeff Mueller to help capitalize on the growing demand of affordable housing. Whether you're an investor looking to achieve double-digit returns or an owner considering expanding your position through a tax-deferred exchange, Jeff Mueller can help. Please call Jeff at 303-328-2049. That's 303-328-2049.
1: Listening to High Yield with Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. If you have a question or comment about our program this week, please call in to 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Or you can send an email to rolf
2: at gmail.com. Now, back to High Yield. Welcome back to High Yield. This is Frank Rolf. Uh, today we're talking about the wide world of financing, and we've talked so far about the different types of financing and the different terms in different notes. Now we're going to talk about the real-life how to get a loan, how to get financing on a commercial property. So we're going to go through this giant list here, and I think we've got plenty of time to get it covered, hopefully. But here are the different things you have to do in order to get a loan. First is you have to have a bankable deal. And that means you have to have a deal that makes sense. It has to make money. It has to have all those features that a bank believes that will give it security in a deal that actually they can get their money back on. There's an old saying in the banking world, before you can, be have, re- before you can have return on, uh, on principle, you have to have return of principle, which means from a bank's perspective, the most important question first is, can I get my money back? You know, I mean, it may sound like a really cool deal to you as the buyer, but the bank is a little more conservative because they're giving you the money to buy it, and they're looking at that saying, well, you know, we don't really have any dream or goals here other than just getting our money back with an interest rate, and is this a safe investment for us to put our bank's money into? So the deal has to be what we call bankable, which means that it's got all the bells and whistles of a deal that's going to work. Also, to be a good bankable deal, it has to have a few items the bank will require to pass judgment on it, such as are there old financial records. I mean, if you're going to go out and get a loan on, on something today, they're going to want to see the last several years of balance sheet and profit and loss statements and probably the seller's uh, tax returns. So, you know, there are certain pieces that any, any deal has to have in order for it to be bankable. The next is you have to have a good business plan. You know, it's one thing to buy a property. Any idiot can do that if the money's there. But what are you going to do with the property? You know, you have to show the bank a business plan. You know, I'm going to buy it, and when I buy it, it'll have an occupancy of this, and the rents will be that, and then the next year I'm going to raise the rents $25 a month, and the next year I'm going to, you know, fill, fill two vacancies, whatever the case may be. A very good, solid, believable business plan of what you're going to do from start to finish. So you have to have a bankable deal. You have to have a good business plan. Uh, The next thing is a good banking presentation. You know, the bank looks at a lot of deals. And when you go before that committee that passes judgment on whether to make the loan or not, they've probably never been to that property. They have no idea where it is. They don't even really care. They're going to go strictly off what the bank officer shows them as part of your application. And that's why you've got to have a really great banking presentation with lots and lots of photos so they feel very comfortable that they know what they're getting into. So you know you want to have a really really good presentation that's so chock-full of information that and and looks so positive that you yourself would make the loan. Just as an example of how a good presentation can go bad, you know when you take those photos of that property they need to be great-looking photos the bank is assuming that you are taking the best looking photos you humanly can because you're trying to get the loan. If your photos are poor, they're thinking, oh my gosh, this is the best photos of this property. And they look this bad. So you don't want to be truly realistic because nobody is. What, what you want to do is show the property in its best light. It would be like if you were taking your yearbook photo. You won't show up for your yearbook photo in high school with your you know, hair uncombed and without shaving and wearing a an old ratty T-shirt, it's the same with the property. You know, you don't want to lie, but you want to show the property in its best light. So a good banking presentation normally has, you know, lots of good photos and lots of good information and something that the bank feels very comfortable with. Next item comes back to you personally. You need to have good credit. Now, you know, you don't have to have sometimes any credit on seller financing. Sometimes you can get away with not a lot of credit with hard money lending. But when it comes to the world of bank financing, it's pretty much a a rule that the borrower needs to have good credit. Not often perfect credit, not often unbelievably great credit, but at least decent credit. There's no bank out there that will make a loan if you've got a credit score of 450 or something. So you need to make sure you have good credit. If you do not have good credit, then you need to, to say to yourself, you know what, I don't have the credit right now to get a loan so instead I'll need to only buy properties that have seller financing uh, next item is a good explanation of how you're going to manage that property and succeed with it because you know when the bank is is going to potentially loan you the money to buy it and they, and they really just want their money back with interest it's key to them that you don't fail and they want to know why you think you won't fail so if you're looking at buying a, a laundromat, they're going to want to know why you think you can successfully operate and manage a laundromat. Now, your past experience doesn't necessarily have to be in real estate. It can be in anything, but you want to have a good story because really that's just a story. There's no promises here. You don't know for sure that you can manage successfully that laundromat. But you want to have a good story to the bank of why you think you can. So it's very important that you've got a very saleable argument of why you're the right guy to own and operate that property. You also have to have the money for third party reports. In other words, if you're going to get financing, it's not completely cheap. Normally you have to get what's called a phase one environmental report. You'll have to get an appraisal. You'll have to get a survey. So these are all items that cost money. A phase one report could cost one to two thousand dollars. The appraisal could cost anywhere from one to four thousand dollars. The survey could cost anywhere from one to $10,000. So you have to, you know, the old adage, you have to spend money to make money. You know, you can't get financing if you don't have the money to pay for those third-party reports. The next item is you got to pass those third-party reports. You know, it's one thing to, to pay for them. It's another to have them come back okay. You know, the key reports that you have to worry about in commercial real estate lending are, number one, is the phase one report. That tells you if you're environmentally clean, the second is the appraisal that tells you what an independent person thinks the property is worth. The next is a survey, it tells you the boundaries and sometimes the improvements on the property. There's also a wetlands report. If you're on a river, often you have to get a wetlands report, and that tells you if you are going to disturb the wildlife uh, with your property. And then there's often a property condition report. That's where someone comes in and tells the bank, yes, the property is in good shape, bad shape, and why. You also have, the, have to have the money for your down payment to get financing. You know, if the bank requires a 20% down payment and the property is a million dollars, you have to have the 200000 for the down payment. So you have to have a down payment. Uh, in the case of conduit borrowing, you have to have, in addition to the down payment, some kind of required liquidity. Now, what that means is in conduit lending, They want to see that the borrower has some money outside of the money for the down payment, and they're doing that to make sure that you have enough money to handle the bumps in the road that may come up, because the last thing a conduit lender wants, since it's not, bear in mind, a bank, but a bank that has originated and sold that loan to the American public, they don't want to have anything go wrong, and they want to make sure that you've got the money to fix things if they did go wrong. Next is you've got to basically react to all your requests for information timely. And, man, there can be a lot of them. Uh, anyone who's ever gotten a conduit loan can tell you that there are many, many, many different re, you know, calls for this and that and items on the occupancy and all kinds of stuff. You have to be prepared to deal with that. You get a call and someone says, I need a report and I need it by tomorrow. Well, you better have it by tomorrow. Because if you can't get them every single report they request, you can't get the loan. So another item in getting a loan is you've got to have the ability and the desire to get get the job done and and give them what they want. Next thing you have to have to get financing often is you have to have a lawyer. Some banks, particularly conduit lenders, will require a lawyer beyond staff to make sure that you know what you're doing and to help create and review the final documents. Now, it's not hard to find a lawyer who can help you in real estate, that's for sure. That's a very large portion of American lawyers have a real estate practice. Nevertheless, if you want to get that loan, you'll have to find a lawyer who can work with you, and of course, you'll have to pay that lawyer too. Another item to get financing is you have to, you know, sign the documents in a timely manner. I had a, a deal once where I had someone who was buying a piece of property, uh, that I had, and for some bizarre reason, they could never get their act together in getting The document signed and when they couldn't get the document signed in time the bank quit they said you know what since you can't get the document signed we've lost faith in you as a borrower so we're not going to do the loan after all I know it sounds odd but basically you know it does happen so if you've got a bank loan and you're trying to get it done that's probably not a good time to go on vacation that's for sure so you always want to be around at the ready to sign those documents when they come in and get them back to the bank as fast as you humanly can, because the bank, you know, is a business, time is money, they've they've got lots of other loans that they're probably looking at, and at the first indication that you're kind of a flake, they're not going to give you the loan. Now, the the final item on getting financing is to always remember that your banking relationship is probably, it may be a repeat, you know, situation, but also equally important, you'll be together for a long, long time. Right, so when you're dealing with your banker, always remember this is not a one-time transaction. This is not getting a hamburger at your local Hardy's hamburger stand. This is a situation where you're going to be entering into a multi-year agreement. You'll be making payments. You'll be hearing from this banker for long periods of time. It's very essential to understand this because when you need to get that loan renewed or another loan with that same bank, they're going to look at your track record of how you have behaved with them that will have a huge bearing on whether they will grant that next loan. So don't, don't think that after you get your loan, you can just have a party and not make your payments on time and not provide them documents when requested because that will just kill you when it comes time to renew or give you another loan. So it's a very, very important relationship. And every time you talk to the bank and everything you do, it's being watched. It's being documented, if not in writing in their brain, that you are a good or bad borrower. And that will leave, give you success in future borrowing or not. This is Frank Roth with High Yield. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and talk some more about the world of financing.
1: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. If you are looking for the highest yielding niches in real estate, then go to Commercial Real Estate University at CREUniversity.com. This website is devoted to exploring the few niches of real estate that can still generate 20% plus returns on your money and offers you college quality courses on how to locate, evaluate, negotiate, perform due diligence on, finance, turn around, and operate the hottest sectors of real estate today mobile home parks, billboards, RV parks, and self storage. All of the materials are written and produced by Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds based on their experiences in over $150 million of real estate bought and sold. If you're looking for real estate investments that make more than low single digits, and if you're looking for 100% facts with no sales pitch, then go to CREUniversity.com or call 800 800- That number again is 800-950-1364 or visit the website at CREUniversity.com.
3: The affordability gap in this country is considerable. There are simply not enough affordable places to live for the millions of lowest-income households. Jeff Mueller of Marcus & Millichap is one of the nation's top manufactured housing community brokers. As a specialist in the manufactured housing industry, please contact Jeff Mueller to help capitalize on the growing demand of affordable housing. Whether you're an investor looking to achieve double-digit returns or an owner considering expanding your position through a tax-deferred exchange, Jeff Mueller can help. Please call Jeff at 303-328-2049. That's
4: 303-328-2049. Hi, I'm Kurt Kelly, President of Mobile Insurance. Mobile is a specialty investment property insurance agency. Parks, self storage facilities, rental properties, commercial buildings. We offer the coverage you need, explained clearly, and low rates. Call us at 800 458 4320 or visit us at mobileagency.com because we understand how to insure investment properties. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here.
1: Voice America Business Network. You're listening to High Yield with Frank Rolfe and Dave Reynolds. If you have a question or comment about our program this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can send an email to frank.rolf at gmail.com.
2: Now, back to High Yield. Welcome back to High Yield. This is Frank Rolf. Today we've been talking about the world of financing. We've talked about how financing works, the different types of financing, and how to get financing. Now we're going to wrap up the show by talking about some of the insider secrets and tricks to getting financing that most people are unaware of and therefore miss out on a lot of opportunities of different high-yielding investments. The first one, which is the main one we want to go over with you, is the importance of using loan brokers. Now, what the heck is a loan broker, you might ask. You know, A lot of people have never heard that terminology or don't know that job function exists. What a loan broker is, is is a person. He's not a banker but he's someone that works with banks all day, every day, and you bring the loan to the loan broker, they go out in the marketplace on your behalf and find you a loan. Now, you might say, well, what does that cost? Well, traditionally they get paid, you know, a point, two points, three points. It's based on the size of your loan and the complexity, but it it, it equates to somewhere along, you know, one one to three percent, let's say, of the actual loan amount. But the important part is they normally get paid only on performance. So it's a purely performance deal. It's not like a sports contract where they hire some baseball player and pay them a million dollars a year, and they never hit a ball or get anything done. These folks, they have to hit the ball. They have to get it done. Because if they don't get it done, they don't get paid. So basically, the, you know, they, it's it's very much accountable where they're totally out there working on your behalf with a big stick over them, which is they don't get paid unless they get it done. Now, you know, the the loan brokerage we use on just about everything we do is called Security Mortgage Group, which is also an advertiser on the show. And, you know, they're the largest loan brokerage in the industry I'm in, which is mobile home parks in the U.S., but they also do apartments, self-storage, RV parks, office buildings. There's virtually nothing they don't finance in the world of commercial real estate, and the, that function is so important to our business. You know, before the advent of Security Mortgage Group, if we had to get a loan, we had to go out there and beat the streets ourselves. Very laborious. You know, it's it's not a lot of fun. And now they do it for us, and it has improved our life enormously. In addition, they go out and get better terms and better loans than we can. So they more than pay for themselves in what they do. So we, we think loan brokerage is one of the, biggest insider secrets that most of the professionals know that the people who are just getting into commercial real estate do not. Now, here's some of the things that they do and and how they do it differently than you would. First off, they know right off the bat which banks to hit. You know, if, if I tell you go get a loan on a piece of commercial real estate in Dallas, Texas, you might make a little list off Google of banks in Dallas and And you say, well, maybe I could do a bank in Houston. But, you know, possibly the right bank for that loan might be in Oklahoma City or it might be in New York or it might be in California. You don't know that because when you're starting out, you have no possible lessons learned from the past or experiences knowing where the right banks are for those properties. And they do because that's all they do. So they immediately can look at a property and say, oh, yeah, we just did a loan like this over at, at you know, American Bank in Oklahoma City. You would never know to go, call on them. So they know all these banks that you do not know. Some of these banks, in fact, don't have storefronts. They don't even have a, a lobby or a teller. There are some banks out there that make commercial real estate loans, and they don't have any of the makings of a bank you would ever even find. So that's, that's one huge item they bring to the table. The next is they help prepare your banking presentation. Now, unless you are a great writer and have written lots and lots of bank presentations, your ability to write a winning presentation right out of the chute is pretty low. However, that's all they do. They, they, they write nothing but great, successful banking presentations. So that's another huge item they bring to the table. The next thing is they, they meet with the banks and you don't. And Unless you speak bank, unless you make a great upfront impression, again, it's a huge service to you right? They they go to the bank on your behalf. They talk to the bank. These are huge items because basically they may get indoors that you could never get in. They may get banks interested that you could never get interested. So it's absolutely essential often to get that, by getting that loan done, that, that someone who knows what they're doing makes that contact and presents that presentation. And that's, what, again, what they do. Uh, the next thing is they can help you, in fact, shape your purchase to meet the current marketplace of banks and what banks need to make loans. We have this happen all the time. They'll come back to us on a property and say, well, you know, we can't get a loan that high on this property. All we can get is blank. We then go back to the seller and say, hey, seller, I'm sorry. We've been out in the marketplace. We cannot get a loan based on that price. We could possibly get it at a lower price. Would you entertain this lower price? So, again, they can give us immediate feedback and help us shape our purchase to make it such that it is financeable. Next is they negotiate with the bank on your behalf. You know, some people are not great negotiators. They, they, you know, they just are not very good at trying to get what they want using traditional negotiating skills. And again, the loan broker, they're great at that. That's what they do all the time is they'll negotiate with the bank on your behalf. We've actually had cases where, you know, the loan broker will tell us, and you know, security mortgage group will tell us that, you know, uh, we think we can get a lower interest rate than, than that. We're going to go try and try and negotiate that down, where, whereas we're thinking, wow, that's a great interest rate. You know, we, we would never have the guts to try and renegotiate that. But, again, that's the kind of thing that they do. Uh, in fact, because of that, they often can get much lower interest rates and better terms than you can. So if you were offered a 7% five-year loan, they may be able to get a 5% 10-year loan because they're just better at it. They're better negotiators. They know more of what the market can bear. So again, they often pay for themselves up front, simply in that little lower interest rate on a a 10-year note or a 5-year note. Well, that that more than pays their fee. Also, they can help hold your hand during the entire process because often when you do a loan, what happens is there are bumps in the road that may come up. And it's always good to have somebody there to, to, to reassure you everything's fine, or to caution you when things aren't fine and what Plan B and Plan C might be. We had we had a loan here, uh, you know, last year where we got in a, in a pickle because when we when they were doing the survey and title work, they found that a little bit of the road we didn't own that that you know an easement had gone bad. They missed getting to sign off on an easement from somebody. Had we not had you know a security mortgage group around, we might have had a nervous breakdown. But they We're very good about going to the bank, saying, here's the situation, how do we solve it, helping us get it solved. So, again, it's very, very important. It's like being in a hospital. You know, When you're in the hospital, it really helps to have a a nurse or a doctor who can come in and tell you exactly what's going on and what the next step is and what's going to happen. So, again, that's hugely important. Now, the only downside is they only work on loans that are about a half a million dollars and up. So if you're looking for a $300,000 loan, sadly, you... You can't do that traditionally with a loan broker like Security Mortgage Group. But if you've got one that's half a million dollars and up, it's always pays for itself. Uh, Your your success rate using them is just gigantic. And again, that's why we do it. We do lots of loans. We could do it ourselves. There's no way we would do it ourselves today. We're much, much happier having them do it, having it professionally done. And because of that, we seem to always get the loan we need. One final item is, you know, everything is negotiable, even banks. So if a bank tells you no, you don't always have to take no. Talk to them further on why it is a no. See if you can get it changed to a yes. I had a a deal once where a bank wouldn't do it because they told me they don't do loans in Oklahoma. I said, well, can I come down and talk to you about that and why I think Oklahoma is a good market? Went down there and met with them, and ultimately they said, you know what? Okay, we're sold. We'll go ahead and do the loan after all. So don't just take no for an answer. That's the first thing the folks at Security Mortgage Group know as well as, you know, everyone, everything's negotiable. Banks are out there trying to make loans or trying to make money. So often you can still get your high yield job done if you'll simply put a little extra effort in there and try and turn that no into a yes. This is Frank Roth with High Yield. I hope you've enjoyed the show today. It's been the wide world of financing. We hope you find some high yield opportunities that require some loans and maybe you learn some things today that'll help you out on that. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, everybody.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to High Yield. Please join Frank and Dave next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great
0: and profitable week.